Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 140. This is your brain on meditation. In this episode, we speak with James Austin, an academic neurologist and author of Zen in the Brain, about the different types of attentional and reality processing systems built into the human physiology. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. And I'm here today joined over the phone by James Austin. James, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, just a little bit of uh, your background so people know your areas of expertise and specialty. You are a trained academic neurologist and researcher and also a longtime Zen practitioner. And it's the intersection of those two fields which has really been one of your primary interests. And you've written several books on the topic of Zen and the brain, and your most recent one is called Selfless Insight, which we'll hopefully get into. But first, I thought it'd be a good idea to give people a sense of what your background with the Zen tradition is, because you've been practicing for several decades, and I thought it'd be cool if we could just hear a little bit about how you were first exposed to Zen, and as I understand it was while you are in Japan, in Kyoto. Right. It came about by accident. Uh, I had gone to Kyoto in 1974 to do a bench research on the brain and uh, I happened, as luck would have it, to uh, be near and was referred to an English-speaking Zen master, Kobori Roshi. Kobori Roshi introduced me to Rinzai Zen and it was this really that uh, captured my imagination, particularly after a few weeks when, during a moment of uh, absorption in the evening, I dropped into an alternate state of consciousness in which my physical sense of self dropped out of the center of my awareness, and I also uh, entered a state in which uh, there was no sound, a state in which the vision was blacker than black, uh, and a state which was later permeated by a sense of uh, bliss. Uh, For a neurologist to drop into a state where vision dropped out and hearing dropped out, This was quite an eye-opener for me, and it led me to believe that there was really something to this uh, Zen meditation. And so this continued to enlist my interest in the subsequent decades and really strengthened my resolve to continue practice. And also, my interest in finding out what actually was going on in the brain when one meditated and when one entered 
these uh, alternative states of consciousness. Right, and that's one of the main topics we wanted to explore with you because it's such an interesting one. And maybe we could kick it off by discussing or exploring some of the main distinctions you make in your writing work. And the first one I thought would be interesting to take a look at is a difference between what you're calling top-down and bottom-up modes of attention. I was wondering if you could say something about that distinction. Yes. These two words, top-down and bottom-up, have entered uh, into our understanding of attention pretty much in this last decade. And let's start with top-down attention, because that's the way we usually begin to uh, meditate. We usually literally uh, look down, usually at some spot that's on the floor in front of us or the wall, and we engage in a concentration that is more voluntary, it's intentional, it's uh, executive, and it's uh, more or less exclusive in the sense that we are excluding uh, everything outside that small focus of our original attention. It turns out that when this particular style of attention is studied in normal people, it's found to engage mostly the regions in the upper, more dorsal part of the brain, And there are two particular areas called modules that are involved in this top-down attention. The first is an important one in the parietal lobe. And the second area that's involved in top-down attention is another area in front of that in the frontal lobe in the region of the frontal eye field, the area that helps us gaze to certain parts of our environment. So these two modules, one parietal, one frontal, in the dorsal part of the brain uh, have been identified, particularly by the group uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, Corbetta and Shulman. And uh, these areas respond to cues that the investigators have presented to their subjects that tell the subject what they might be experiencing in a few seconds, where the stimulus might be coming from, and even when the stimulus might be occurring. So this is kind of an intentional, focused, intelligent way that's voluntary to responding, it turns out, to the opposite side of the environment. So in these words, I've been trying to put together what the dorsal attention system does when it engages in what we call top-down attention. Mm-hmm. Now, the second kind of attention that we pay normally to our environment, actually uh, 
it's a misnomer uh, to use the word pay because this is a kind of subtler attention that is reflexive. It's automatic. When it attends, it is on the lookout for things that might happen unexpectedly. Uh, researchers don't warn their subjects about stimuli that might be coming in. The subjects pretty much have to pick up these stimuli automatically by staying aware and by staying alert. This is, has also been called a kind of choiceless awareness in the sense that the subject is not choosing to pay attention to one focal region, but stays attentive to whatever might happen out in the external environment. And that's called bottom-up attention. It turns out that actually the parts of the brain that are responsible for this kind of attentive processing are located at a lower, more ventral level than the dorsal attention system. The particular areas are mostly in the temporal parietal junction on the right side. And the other right-sided region uh, is in the ventrolateral frontal cortex, again, on the right side. So what do these mostly right-sided regions do? It turns out that they pay this involuntary reflexive attention to both the right and left sides of the environment. Now, if you've sort of been prepared to accept that your left-sided temporal and frontal regions are most concerned with your language operations, with words and your expressive speech and your receptive speech, it becomes a little easier to understand that the brain delegated to the right side of the brain this important function of paying attention to both sides of the environment. So to summarize then, we've got two different modes of paying attention. One sort of looks down and is mostly in the upper part of the brain. When it looks down, it pays attention mostly to things that are in front of it. It pays attention to things that we can grasp close to our body, like tools. And in doing that, by the way, in grasping things close to our body with our hands and fingers and using tools, we're mostly relying on our senses of touch in our fingers and proprioception in our fingers. These are clearly parietal lobe-oriented functions. So I hope you're getting the sense that we're talking more about a top-down function that is more in the parietal lobe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 
the ventral attention system, because it's mostly coursing through lower parts of the brain, particularly in the lower temporal and lower frontal lobe, that's relying more on our senses of vision and our sense of hearing. And these senses are designed to help us detect and identify things that are out of reach of our fingers, things at a distance, things way off in the distance, in fact. And instead of looking down in order to identify these, its uh, efficiencies are designed more in the direction of identifying and seeing and hearing things at a distance from us, often by looking up or by listening up. So there you are, two forms of attention involving very different parts of the brain. And the importance of these for meditators, I think, with a little reflection, you can start beginning to imagine. Because basically, are two different kinds of attentive arts that we engage in when we meditate fall into the similar categories. Right. Our concentrative meditation is more effortful. It's more sustained, focused, and exclusive. It requires top-down attentive processing. Uh, it's more self-referential. Uh, it may evolve into the absorptions of the jhanas, uh, and it can be sort of summarized as as paying attention, whereas the more receptive modes of meditation are more unfocused, they're more effortless, they're more open. They involve only a sort of a bare awareness that expresses bottom-up modes of processing. They're more involuntary, they're other-referential, they're attuned to the world outside, and they're the ones that can shift into our more intuitive or insightful modes of awareness. And they're clearly choiceless because we're not in there choosing to do them. They more or less take place automatically. So it's these two major modes of attention that overlap in significant ways with comparable styles of meditation. The one is concentrative and the other is receptive. And this really closely connects to what you call egocentric and allocentric. These certain senses are kind of focused on the self and then other senses kind of right. more focused on the outside. And that seems to bring up this interesting question about duality in, in the brain. Well, it turns out that the brain really has two ways of perceiving reality. Reality is something, in one sense, that clearly refers back to us as an experiencer back in the center. That's one way. That's called egocentric processing. But there's another way of processing reality, which is not egocentric, 
Ego uh, has as its opposing word aloe. Aloe means other. Ego means self-centered. Other-centered processing refers to the way we identify things in the outside world out there, more or less leaving them out there, where they exist in co-relationships with other objects that are out there, away from us. Clearly, our egocentric way of processing things is inherently more subjective because we're in there, we're the subject. There is an inherently more objective, that is, non-personal, impersonal way of perceiving objects, and that is accomplished by the allocentric processing stream. Now, here again, the egocentric processing stream, having started visually in the occipital lobe, has its trajectory that moves upward and toward the parietal lobe in the dorsal part of the brain. In contrast, the allocentric processing stream, having also started occipitally, uh, has its trajectory downward moving toward the inferior temporal region and then on into the inferior frontal lobe. The egocentric processing stream is clearly oriented to serve our own abilities to act in the environment. The allocentric processing stream is much more relative. It can be highly uh, abstract. It depends on vision and hearing. It taps into the stream that asks, what is it out there in the outside environment? In contrast, the egocentric processing stream is designed to say, where is it? And to answer that question, and then to proceed to answer how one should act as a uh, person. So we've got these three general topics. The first is attention. The second relates to meditation, the ways we meditate. The third relates to the question you asked about how do we process reality Mm -hmm. in two different ways. And there are very important overlappings between these three topics. The overlappings show that they're as complementary as yin and yang. They're opposite functions, and yet they're balanced, and they operate in a neat, balanced way to help us function, both as meditators and as people who are interpreting and acting in the real world. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, cool. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.